You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Freaky. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of Mend, we start digging in our own backyards. Beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction, to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the backs of the landers, the activists, the families, the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come thus far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us. Pull up a chair, pour a glass, and listen. Welcome back to MEND, episode 19. This week we are excited to share with you the story and wisdom of Casey O'Neill, a second-generation farmer residing in northern Mendocino. Casey lives on a multi-generational family farm where they cultivate roughly an acre of land. Much of that terraced fruit and vegetable gardens for their CSA, interspersed with the cannabis that he, his wife, and his parents grow within their 5,000 square foot permitted medicinal cultivation area that they tend as well. He talks to us about what he sees as the two dominant perspectives within the current culture of cannabis, namely resource extraction and the homestead model, and which one he's doing the hard work of fighting for right now. Casey also tells us about his own journey, from a degree in sociology to the work of farming, and now onto policy and how that shaped him over time. We talk about the pivotal moment inside his own life that shifted him from a self-identified monocropper laboring inside the outlaw farmer prohibition model to his present-day work as an advocate and staunch activist on behalf of the small-scale, biodiversified farm he sees as key to restoring the health, viability, and sovereignty, not only of this small North Coast region, but also to the larger world of farming, agriculture, and humanity as well. How he does not expect to see the rewards of his efforts anytime soon, but what keeps him moving forward with them nonetheless. He shares his hard-earned advice on what it takes to set up a truly functional farmers cooperative and collective, and what practical steps need to be taken to make it work. Casey also shares what he sees as our pivotal moment and our last hope and what shall determine whether we are consumed by the industrial corporate agricultural model that has failed us in so many ways, or if we, the counter cannabis culture, shall rise above and shift the conversation to the betterment of all. This is a capstone conversation for us here at MEND, and if we were to break down the entire ethos and drive of what we want you to walk away with inside this season, we would hand you this. So please, take a minute, jot down some notes, and enjoy. So we're really happy to have on um, Casey O'Neill tonight, who is a CSA farmer who runs a micro-diversified farm in northern Mendocino County. His family raises approximately two acres of clean, green, certified vegetables, poultry, and medical cannabis in a small farm setting while working towards sustainability. 
He is a self-described weed geek and is passionate about sharing food, medicine, and cultivation techniques with others. He's passionate about representing small farmers as a board chair of the California Growers Association and as a voice in the legalization and functional regulation movement. So welcome, Casey. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So we typically, beyond that lovely bio, which I'm, I was I was stoked to come across, um, we usually like just to kind of ask people to kind of just kind of place themselves in context. So a lot of the people we've been talking to have been, like Annie and myself, humble uh, residents, or former humble residents at least. So if you could just kind of maybe place yourself in the context of the Northern California cannabis scene, where you hail from, the work that you do, and just a little bit of background. Definitely. So I live on Bell Springs Road, which is about 10 miles north of Laytonville, um, give or take as the crow flies, five, maybe eight miles south of the Humboldt County border, northern Mendocino. My folks are old school back to the landers, so they moved out of the Bay Area. Pops bought the land in 75. They moved up in 1982. They moved up in May. I was born in September. Um, they didn't come here for cannabis. They came here because they didn't want to raise children in the city. Um, they wanted to, you know, be part of that sort of return to the land movement, the idea of going out to figure out a different way to do things. My family's um, carpenters, bricklayers, tradesmen, tradespeople by um, nature. And so they... Uh, there's a series of parcels. There's four 20-acre parcels. Um, originally, there were some more larger parcels also that other uncles of mine owned, but they have since moved on to other areas. Uh, what remains is four 20-acre parcels. Uh, the f parcel that I live on with my parents, my wife, my parents, um, my uncle's parcel. There's two of my uncles and my cousin share a parcel, and then my grandparents' parcel who are no longer with us, but the house is still there. And um, family uses it to come up and stay on the land. And then my brother's parcel on the far, far side. So there are two um, parcels engaged in commercial farming, my brother's parcel and, and the parcel that Amber and I live on with my folks. Um, we, you know, like you, you mentioned in the bio, we run a, a small farm. We do a, a small CSA, um, about 10 to 15 shares a week, which is, a, you know, it's like a vegetable subscription service. Uh, we have run it as large as 50 shares a week. Um, right now, we've, we're sort of operating on a more scaled-down model because we're spending a lot of time, uh, just a huge, almost absurd amount of time, working on cannabis regulation and cannabis permitting for our farms. Uh, we run a medicinal cannabis collective, Happy Day Farms Collective, and uh, we produce a variety of, of seed stock strains. We, we make our own seed. We save seed. And um, we uh, strive to produce the highest quality medicine we can. So, and then along with that, we also do a couple of farmers markets. So we do a, a Monday market in Laytonville, and then a Wednesday market up here on Bell Springs, um, and some special orders on Friday. So we 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 pick every we harvest every day, um, and then we market three days a week. And that's that's pretty consistent through the summer. As we get into fall, winter, we, we drop the, the Bell Springs Farmer's Market. We generally stay with the Laytonville Farmer's Market through the winter so long as we have production coming in. This last year, with the, the heavy winter, we didn't have as much production coming in, and so we um, 
did not do the market last year, but in general, uh, we tend to market most of the year. It, you know, it kind of varies depending on the weather um, and depending on our production patterns. When you said that you you make and save seed, do you do that with cannabis seeds or or just vegetable seeds? Absolutely. Yeah, we don't do. We, I don't do a whole lot of vegetable okay. seed saving. Um, for the most part, most of my production vegetables, we you know we purchase seed from Johnny's. We do a fair number of hybrids, um, high performing hybrids, mostly because a lot of the time we're trying to push the window either early or late. They say in in uh, vegetable farming and, and farming in general, you know, your market niche should be either early, late, or ornate. And uh, so in terms of vegetable production, a lot of the time we're working with hybrids. We're working with things that are um, that are going to be fairly uniform and standard and that we know um, we can push. And, and part of that is we're on such a small amount of space that we have to be able to maximize productivity at all times. We farm a total of um, actual bed space is, is around an acre um, for everything, cannabis and vegetables. We have, my brother has a 5,000 square foot cannabis permit, and then my folks and I, my folks and Amber and I split a 5,000, so we each have 2,500. Um, and the rest of it's all vegetables, the other 30,000 30, square foot, give or take. So, and then we also interplant the cannabis with the vegetables. Um, wow. And uh, so in terms of vegetable production, it's, you know, for the most part, we purchase seeds. There's a few things, kale and a few other things that we save seed from. The cannabis, we make our own seed. Um, so we, we save males, uh, we collect the pollen, and then we pollinate individual branches. Um, and we've been working on a lot of the, you know, a lot of the different crosses for five or six years now, give or take. Some of them longer than that, some of them a little less than that, um, and, and just working on specific strains things that things that are acclimatized to do well on our sites that um have nice high test results that and, and it's funny it's like these were strains that we were working with before test results were really a thing and it was an interesting mm. correlation to be like oh yeah <laughs> that really works well in my head and surprise surprise it tests really high so that was kind of a, a friendly correlation to find in the marketplace um, and, and so, you know, like I say, we've been kind of playing around with these things for a few years nice. now and, and we like what they do. What you described just sounds so almost kind of old world to me, just the, you know, the multi-generational farm and, you know, doing it on a slope like that and how everything you say is, you know, planted, you know, and intermingled together. Would you say for the area that you're in is the, the, the world that you, you farm and inhabit that you live in, is that kind of typical or are you guys kind of more old school than a lot of the, the outliers and neighbors you see around you? You know, I think there's, there's really two dominant perspectives in, in the cannabis production scene. There's the resource extraction perspective and the homestead ethos. For the homesteaders, cannabis was never, a, you know, cannabis was always a means to an end. It was a means, it was a way to be able to live on the land, not have to have a town job, um, and, and to be able to participate in the natural cycles of, of production and life. And it included vegetable farming, it included, you know, raising of um, chickens or animals or whatever, you know, this, this sort of more holistic perspective, raising other herbs, um, producing, uh, you know, med medicinal herbs and products and salves and tinctures and all these different things 
that were, you know, have been a, a big part of the traditional homestead back to the land movement. And, and I think we've seen a, a real shift towards a more resource extraction based perspective in which it's like, you know, um, just grow a whole bunch of weeds, sell it for whatever and go to Belize for three months. Um, and that's been frustrating. You know, that's for me, this is kind of a running joke on the hill. Like, well, if you're around in the winter, um, then we'll spend some time together because there's you know a fair <laughs> number of people who, who don't stick around through the winter. And, and that's really, a, you know, kind of, for me, a defining characteristic is like, um, do you live here or do you make your living here? Because there's two different mm -hmm. perspectives there. And, and for me, it's like, I live here. I've been here my whole life, except for when I went to college. This is where I expect to um, hang my hat up at some point. And that's, you know, and that, that sort of is kind of a central tenet to um, my advocacy is that for me, there is nowhere else. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are seeing the regulations come down and saying to themselves, well, you know, uh, I'm just going to sell and move on to greener climbs or other places or whatever. And, and for me, there is no other place. There's nowhere to go. This is home. This is it. And so it, it mm -hmm. has definitely fostered a sense of, of something worth fighting for, for me. And, and, you know, I've spent, I, I can't, I could not begin to estimate the number of hours I've spent working on regulations, going to supervisor meetings, going to planning commission meetings, trying to help policymakers figure out how to craft these regulations. And, and, the sad part of it is that no matter what, it's going to end up broken. Like <clears throat> there is no, right. there is no good regulations. It's not going to be like, yeah, this is sweet. It, at the, you know, it's a zero sum game. The best that it's going to be is we don't get totally screwed. And, and that makes it really difficult. You know, regulations are more or less for the most part set up to, to um, deal with the biggest, most well-funded businesses because that's who's pushing their agenda for the most part. And, so that's been for me, you know, again, one of the sort of the central tenets of my advocacy is to go out and fight for the for the small producer. Um, and, and there's a funny thing happening in which, you know, well, who's small? Anybody my size, who's big, anybody bigger than me is kind of one of those things you, you, that sort of happens a lot within production, um, and, you know, and, and, and talking to people throughout the industry and stuff. And so. It's been a really hard thing for for our community to come to grasp, to come to grips with, and, and a big part of it is that we're not part of the traditional power structure. And you know, it's so often, so many times, there's some some spinoff or takeoff on the general theme of we have to shout down the man and shout down the system, and it's like that doesn't work. That's this is not mm. you know regulations are developed inside the system and. And so sort of our, you know, a, a, a big part of our traditional cannabis culture, our traditional sort of um, counterculture is the, the protest ethic and the, the idea of like, you know, the system is broken and, and we have to try to, you know, overcome somehow. And, the, and that's been the hard reality is like our people are totally marginalized. We don't know how to interact with policymakers. The number of times where I've been at a board of supervisor and, and some, somebody's just yelling at them. And I'm like, you really, you really think that that's helpful here? You think that's gonna, you like, do you think your point got across that it was effective to do that? And, and, and you know, they say in politics, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And that's been a, you know, we, a, a, the, the small farms have been on the menu a lot, and it's been really hard to to get people organized, to get people focused, 
one of the biggest parts of it is that cannabis culture can rarely agree on anything. And a big part of this is that there's no, there's no underlying basis. We all come to cannabis from different perspectives, from different realities, with different reasons. And so then when you try to, when you try to draw commonalities there, it gets really, really difficult and things end up really, really heated. And so, you know, the first year, 2014, um, that I was really involved in it, we really broke it down to some simple, basic tenets. Cannabis is agriculture. People who grow cannabis are farmers. They're not criminals. And that was something that, you know, we had pretty general agreement on from within the culture. And, and you know, but from policymakers, there wasn't necessarily agreement. You know, there's still some policymakers that think everybody who's involved in cannabis is a criminal. So using those sort of basic talking points was really sort of an opening salvo in this conversation for us in which as cannabis farmers, we were coming out of the woodworks, coming out of the closet. You know, I, I hesitated to use the analogy until I heard Ter Terrence Allen, who's an elder gay man from San Francisco, um, make the statement that you guys are coming out of the closet just like we did. And, and this is a process in which you're going to have to own who and what you are if you're going to be able to to move forward in this. And so it's been, a, on the one hand, a tremendously empowering journey. On the other hand, a, a, a ridiculously difficult journey because, again, it's super hard to find agreement. And kind of by definition with regulatory development, there's going to be um, – farms and businesses that it works for and there's going to be farms and businesses that it doesn't and you add in the layer of sort of outlaw culture and and the reality that cannabis farmers have been participating in for decades and and it's a it's a it's a square peg round hole situation for a lot of the mm -hmm. you know nobody ever started growing cannabis because they were like you know what i want to do <laughs> paperwork so it's it, it's you know now deal with the county government, deal with permitting, deal with all of these things that we've sort of been able to hide out in the hills and avoid for the last however long it's been, um, makes it really difficult. And especially for the old timers, like they've been, they've been out here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it's like, all of a sudden you're going to say, Hey, your whole paradigm has to shift to this totally different thing that you're totally unprepared for. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really rough, you know, and, and as sort of a, you know, as somebody who's involved in this process, there's a there's a huge sense of responsibility for that, of trying to figure out how do our, you know, how does our community make this transition? And, and there's times where I'm like, you know, I wish I would have just stayed on the farm and kept my head down and not participated in it because um, there's a lot of anger in the community. There's a lot of, of fright and, and fear and worry. And so now as this thing continues to move forward, um, you know, again, it sort of is creating this process in which it's going to work for some people. It's not going to work for other people. Um, and that's that's drawing some real divisions within the community. It's making it very, very difficult. Anytime you have a, a situation that affects people's livelihoods, it's going to be highly emotionally charged. And that's definitely, you know, where we're at at this point. Mm -hmm. Who do you think should regulate? In our last interview, we were talking about it's Department of Agriculture is in charge of the regulations at this point. And uh, Brian, who we interviewed, said that Oregon, it's gone to the liquor people, right? Is that what he said, Amy? Right. And OLCC. Yeah, they're treating it just like another yeah vice, basically. So they're taxing it and regulating it mm -hmm. according to yeah a lot of the same laws that they're using for alcohol and tobacco and all that. Yeah. So, so I'm just wondering, do you uh, who do you think should be in charge of the regulations? 
I'm a huge proponent of Department of Agriculture. Okay. You know, and, and Oregon has OLCC. Some of the other states have used Department of Public Health. What you end up with, and from my perspective as a farmer, I want to work with Department of Ag because they work with farmers. And for instance, if Department of Public Health regulates it, then it's a more lab grade, again, industrial, um, generally indoor, uh, specific type of paradigm that that is profoundly different than that which I experience on my farm. And so for me it has it has been very very important and one of the things that I've spent as much time working on as anything else that we be regulated by the Department of Agriculture. Um and I'll tell you down here in Mendo Department of Ag has been great. They're trying to figure it out just like anybody else and it's hard and they don't necessarily know and we're all trying to figure it out but they know we're farmers and they treat us like farmers. There's, there hasn't been any of that, yeah. you know, building and planning. They're still kind of on some, like you hippies have been getting away with this forever. And now we got gotcha. you. And <laughs> department of ag is just like happy to see us. And that's, yeah. and, and, you know, compared with the sheriff's department, you know, and, and that was again, one of the big, you know, sort of the catchphrase talking points was we want the guns and badges off our farms. Let's have a, you know, if somebody comes to inspect a, a vineyard, he's going to show up in a government sedan with a clipboard and some loafers. Mm-hmm. I don't want the guns. I don't want the boots. Yeah. I want my clipboard and loafers. And so it's been great, you know, seeing that transition. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of Department of Ag. But that, that is something that comes up is, you know, you're taking these people that have been living out in the hills and have chosen to live out in the hills to live their own life. And then now they're being asked to sign on the dotted line and to, you know, be on camera if they're going to have these, these legitimate grows and, and to be out there. And it's, it is a a very different lifestyle than what they have chosen. And so, you know, that is the question of, are, you know, what, what are you willing to, to do to keep, to continue to live out here and to, to do what you're doing and, are you willing to take the steps to make the transition? And are you capable in terms of a, a zoning perspective, a land use, what's going on on your parcel perspective? Are there legacy issues from timber? You know, there's just so many factors and variables. And, and another, you know, one of the biggest, biggest factors is that for the vast, vast majority of culter, cultivators, the guy with the duffel bag comes and he takes the product away and leaves money. And most of the time, the guy with the duffel bag is taking it somewhere that's out of state. And, uh, you know, we're, we're caught in this limbo in which cannabis is the only crop. You know, if you if I you know, if I wanted to sell my tomatoes to Nevada, there would be some restrictions in terms of that. But it's something that's possible. And so the reality of it is that California vastly overproduces the amount of cannabis way more cannabis goes out of state than it stays in state. Yeah. And so it makes it, you know, that adds a layer to it in which, um, people are picking their heads up and saying, okay, well, you know, I might want to go legal. How do I, what's the legal market? And, and this is one of those interesting things where for me, you know, for us as, as a farm, we've spent the last three years, four years doing market development work, finding legal channels, for our product to go. And, and as a vegetable farmer, like I don't, I don't grow crops that I don't have a market for. And one of the things that I've seen that's actually to me pretty frustrating is 
people scale way up without doing any market development work. And so all of a sudden, people are growing a whole bunch more cannabis, right. and they don't have an outlet for it. And they haven't done the work to develop the outlet for it. And for me, it's that, you know, we didn't scale up because we didn't have an outlet for significantly more product. And so we sort of kept it at um, what was a workable level for us. And, and we're, you know, looking at the marketplace and saying, wow, there's a lot of changes going on. We don't really know what's going to happen with pricing. Um, but, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Craft does not scale. I don't have any interest in being a large farm. I really like mm -hmm. what it is that I do. I like the quality of what we produce. And I, I don't have any interest in trying to, um, you know, it's, it's that whole Earl Butts, Richard Nixon, Secretary of Agriculture, get big or get out, plant fence row to fence row. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to, uh, and that was, again, you know, what drove me into sort of the whole regulatory process was looking at the way it had developed in other states, looking at the way it was likely to develop here based on, um, the, you know, the lobbying money involved and saying, you know, there's, there's, if I don't do something about this, there's not going to be a place at the table for me. Um, and, and I'm still, you know, I, I, on any given day, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster. You know, there's days when I'm like, I could totally do this. And there's days where I'm like, I'm totally screwed. And so it's, it's, it's very, very difficult when you look at the processes that we're facing, I'm as prepared as anybody and I'm still struggling with it. And, and so we're all as a community facing this issue of like, wow, this thing is way bigger than any of us. And, and this is sort of the, the interesting slash frustrating backdrop of it is that even if every single cultivator vote, it, like, it did not matter whether cultivators voted for or against the AUMA did not matter. That was decided by essentially the main population centers, you know, the area around Sacramento, the area around the Bay Area, the area around L.A. And so the the reality of it is we, we don't have a whole lot of say in the thing. And, and this is one of the things that's very, very hard to explain to the community when it's like, you know, as, as sort of a de facto representative, people are like, well, I need you to go out and fight for this. And I'm like, look, that's not going to happen. Like there was a whole push for for us to to fight for no taxes. And like, that's just, it's not going to happen. And so it, it ends up, and this is, this is, I think for me, the most disheartening, most frustrating thing is that I end up being able to figure out what I see as a workable compromise with policymakers. And then I have to try to explain it to the community who thinks that we should have gotten more and better. And the hard reality of it is that we don't have political capital. We're outgunned, outnumbered and outmoneyed. And we don't also, you know, we also don't have the, 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 control of the system that, um, you know, for instance, a large capitalized business that can spend a million dollars on policy work can bring to the table in terms of lobbying capacity. And so yeah. it, it makes it a, a very difficult, very frustrating process. And it took me a little while, you know, I got into it really feeling like we're fighting for the win. And it, it took a while for it to sink in that like, no, no, we're fighting to not lose. And that's a much harder <laughs> battle. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, I mean, I listened to you and just, you know, reading some of the words that you've put out there for the, the community, you seem to have a really firm grasp of your own ethos for this and, you know, what it is that you are actually fighting for, the culture and the way of life. Um, and also, but the context that you find yourself in, you know, like that was, you know, I, that quote that you just threw out with the Earl Butts and Nixon Secretary of Agriculture. I mean, like, like I don't know that most people can place themselves in that context, you know, because the, it seems like the, the 
the chips stacked against them are so big and coming from so many ends that they don't even know where to begin to kind of fight that fight, you know? So, I mean, so where, where was the process for you? Where did you first get started when you realized that you were going to have to kind of shift your way of doing things? You were going to have to move from that kind of outlaw prohibition mode and, and move into a different way of doing things entirely. What were some of the first steps that you took to kind of shift gears? Well, for me, I got busted. And so 2008, okay. there was a big federal sweep. I was working on a parcel out at Island Mountain. There was a big federal sweep of the whole neighborhood. Um, and so I got rolled up for cultivation. Um, and at that point, so that was 2008, you know, uh, fall, winter of 2008, I'm facing these charges. I got these court cases and stuff. And I'm, I'm looking at it, at, at the whole picture of my reality and saying to myself, well, you know, I, I'm a... I'm a monocrop farmer, and as a monocrop farmer, I've just lost my crop, and um, I, I'm essentially mm -hmm. engaged in a, in, a, in a fundamentally unsustainable farming model. And so I started. I took I took two classes at CR. I took a sustainable product, a sustainable vegetable production class, and a soil and fertilizer class. And um, wow. and during that, you know, I was also you know I, I started gardening at home. I, I had a small cabin that I had built on the folks' property, so I moved home. You know, I, I left the, I, I left Island Mountain, and I, I moved home, and I started my own garden, and I, so I was kind of growing some food, and just kind of, you know, it's the old gardening as therapy, trying to, trying to process through what I was going through with the court case, and not sure what was going to happen, and so um, I got sentenced to do a couple of months in county, two months in Mendocino County, and so they delayed my sentencing to allow me to finish the classes I was taking, so... You know, I kind of wrapped this semester of, of really, you know, learning all this stuff about vegetable production and throwing a bunch of stuff essentially into the hopper and then sat down for a couple of months. If you're going to go to jail, Mendocino County is a great place to do it. They've got a, a phenomenal um, organic gardening section in the jail. They have a rule. You can get books shipped in, but you can't take them with you when you leave. So over the years, cultivators have had all sorts of great literature shipped in, and, and I also was doing the same thing, so I was reading a lot of, a lot of Joel Salatin, a lot of Wendell Berry, and um, yeah. so I really, you know, I came out of jail really with a plan for uh, starting a farm, for being a CSA farmer. Um, Joel Salatin's Everything I Want to Do is Illegal was a, was a huge, mo you know, motivator, impetus for me, and, and um, is certainly kind of a bitter irony at this point to have gone from a perspective of, you know, essentially anti-regulation to a perspective of like, well, you know, regulation is going to happen. And I, you know, it's, if, it, if, if, if we don't help to steer it, it's going to happen in ways that we can't live with. So we got to try and work on the thing. Um, and also, you know, at the same time, seeing what the resource extraction perspective is doing to the ecology in our hills. Um, it has been a big motivator for me and, you know, I, I, it's not something I really want to focus on because, you know, there's, there's plenty of media out there talking about how bad things are, but it's more, you know, what I've always really chosen to focus on is, is good practice and what we can do right and, and how we can always do mm. better. Um, <clears throat> and so that was a, you know, that was a big impetus for me. So then I had, Three years in which I had a, a no cultivation clause. You know, I had probation for three years and, and no cultivation clause. So I, I couldn't grow. I could still consume. So I could still have my Medi, but I couldn't cultivate. And so I was 
swinging hammer. Like I said, my you know my family, my uncle and stuff are all carpenters and construction guys and stuff. So I was working construction and I was starting to farm and you know. So 2010, I took my first um, vegetable, my first tomatoes to market, um, and uh, I met at that time I met Amber. You know, I was doing community service in the in the community garden and she was volunteering in the community garden. And so, um, we got to hanging out and we'd see each other at farmer's markets and stuff. And so we got together that, that fall late that fall. And, and we kind of, you know, I was kind of like, you know, I'm really excited about this, this CSA model I've been reading about. And she was like, well, me too. So summer of 2011, I think 2011, we started our CSAs in the beginning of the summer. And so, um, we had six six members, and they all prepaid, gave us money up front, and we brought them a $20 a week bag of vegetables. Um, and it was kind of a cool thing in which the, you know, in, with the launching of it, um, there were some real specific, you know, it was like the first CSA members got, the first weeks they got strawberries and peas and asparagus and all these like really specialty, really quality crops that there was only enough of for the CSA members. And so it kind of created this, a little bit of this hype in which people would come to the farmer's market and be like, Oh, I want some of those. And we'd be like, no, no, those are only for the CSA members. And, and so it was, yeah, it was very much a, a, sort of a self reinforcing process in which we were like, wow, this is really cool. This is, you know, the thing about farming for market is that Americans expect to buy from like a bountiful um, uh, table. They'll buy a lot more if there's, if stuff is piled up high, which means you essentially have to bring more than you're going to sell to market and you're going to cart home a whole bunch of stuff you didn't sell. And the CSA is great because you know, you, you, you your customer is already committed. They're going to show up, they're going to take it and, and they're not going to pick it off the table. You're going to put it in a bag for them. And so if I have a whole bunch of kohlrabi, guess what? You guys get kohlrabi and I'll give you a recipe with the newsletter that shows how to use it. But the reality of it is you're going to get kohlrabi this week. And so, um, and vice versa, like I learned pretty quickly that I probably shouldn't grow very much kohlrabi because people don't want to eat it. Um, and so if you, you know, if you put too much stuff that people don't really want in their bags, then they won't renew the next year. So it's, you know, CSA has, it's a, certainly an imperfect model. There's no, you know, nothing is, nothing is foolproof. And so we definitely, you know, the combination of the farmer's market and the CSA is something that's very, very important to us. And at the same time, you know, we were kind of experiencing this farmer's market interaction, this give and take of knowledge and discussion and, you know, producing and providing nourishment for people and having that exchange over the table and saying to ourselves, like, wow, if we could do this with cannabis, it would be it would be incredible. And so then 2013, we launched the collective. I got off um, probation. I think it was 2013, something like that. Um, and then 2014 we did, and we went to the Emerald cup in 2013. We were like, wow, this is, this is pretty trippy. It was the first year that it was down in Sonoma. Um, I judged and, and Amber and I judged the cup, you know, 2000, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, I, I judged <laughs> for a number of years there, but when it first moved to Sonoma, it was kind of like, wow, this is, this is nuts. And so then the next year uh, we had a booth. You know, Tim, Tim let us share a booth um, with with the Healing Harvest crew. And, and so we had, you know, it was like, you know, cannabis events, a lot of the times it's like silver and black and pink and sexy. And we were like down home with a yeah. burlap tablecloth and some 
jars and some apples and carrots and things, you know. And so, um, and and you know, it's, it was this whole like this is an outdoor cannabis competition, and everything is like manufactured and indoor. And so we were, it, it was like we were we just were totally unique in, in what we had the the way we presented ourselves, what we had at the at the at, at the table, and and consumers were pumped. And it was one of those. It was definitely one of those like affirmation times where it was like wow this this really is everything we had hoped it would be and more having those interactions over the table and being able to have that exchange and discussion about yes that we grew this this is why we grew it this is what we like about it you want to try a sample you know that whole process was was just magical it was incredible and and so you know that was so then you know boom fast forward a little bit 2014 Assembly Bill 1262 gets introduced. And 1262 says we're going to authorize 30 statewide licenses for cultivation. End of story. And these 30 licenses obviously were being pushed by um, large, well-capitalized businesses who expected to grow large acreage um, in places like Salinas. And that was really a catalyzing moment for a lot of our community in which you know, um, it was an existential threat to our whole reality. And so at that point, we really, that, that was really sort of the genesis of the, we're farmers, we're not criminals. And, and the subtext to it was we want regulation from Department of Ag. And we want, you know, there was, there was a whole bunch of specifics that we were really keyed into. And so 2014, Assembly Bill 1262 went down. It did not pass. And so we headed into 12, into 2015 with this, this set of talking points that said, look, we want regulation under Department of Ag. We want no limit to the number of licenses that will be issued. And we want tiered licenses. We want there to be um, some some version of, you know, specialty, small, medium. Um, and, and at the time, we really weren't even considering an acreage cap. It was something that we had discussed and would have liked to see, but didn't think was a possibility. So seeing the acreage caps come out of the, you know, that whole process, that regulatory process that became the MCRSA, that was a pretty powerful thing. And, and one of the interesting dynamics about it was that um, that was where the concept of distribution surfaced. And, and distribution became the most hot button issue in the whole conversation. And the reality of it was, was that distribution was the proposed choke point in exchange for the authorization of no limit to the number of licenses because what we proposed was look there should be as many cultivation licenses as cultivators who apply for them and they said well how are we supposed to regulate that how are we supposed to audit all those businesses how are we supposed to keep track of that because we said you know there's an estimated more than 50,000 cultivators out there and so the the hmm. you know the proposition was like okay well if there's no limit to the number of cultivator of cultivators then there should be some sort of a choke point involving distribution and that distribution would be charged with making sure that taxation happened and making sure that testing happened. At the time, it was estimated that approximately 3% of medicine on dispensary shelves had actually been lab tested. And so there was a huge issue that was just starting to unfold into public consciousness about essentially the dirtiness of the product that was on shelves at that time, and and still is. And so this was, you know, and, and, and that really... You know, again, distribution became the hot button issue because people, I don't want to have to take my product to the distributor. And the question that was always asked of them, well, okay, what is your solution to allow for unlimited licenses for cultivation and to guarantee that the product is clean, has been tested, and has been taxed? And that's a hard problem. 
you know, there's, there is no, this is again, one of those like, um, no good answers, lots of hard questions, no good answers. And it's still, you know, it remains an issue with the, you know, now we have fast forward to today, we have the mock cursor, the M-A-U-C-R-S-A, um, businesses can farms, you know, any, any business can also hold a distribution license. The problem with that is that it takes a fairly capitalized business to do so. If you say, well, you know, a distribution yeah. license is going to cost tens of thousands of dollars plus trucks and drivers and all these things, all of a sudden, you know, you're a farm like mine, you're saying, well, <laughs> distribution's out. And so the, you know, there has not been, this is still, this is an issue, you know, the, how cannabis is regulated is an issue that we're going to be working on for a decade to come at least. And, and that was, that was again, a very sobering realization where it was like, you know, I kind of got into this thing thinking, well, you know, I'll do this for a little while and then I'm going to go back to the farm. And, and it's, um, you know, for instance, we stopped saying to each other, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll hang out when things slow down. Cause at a certain point we realized like, Things aren't going to slow down. This is the new normal. And, and that's been really hard. You know, my friend said to me the other day, yeah. she said, you remember when you, you quit working construction so you could be a full time farmer? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, how's that working out for you? Um, and it's tough. You know, I, I leave the farm yeah. almost every day now. And and <laughs> that's definitely something that, that eats at me. But at the same time, it's kind of like, wow. you know, it's it, it needs to be done. And and this is you know, again, one of the hardest things is the number of people who have said to me something along the lines of like, well, we didn't want this to happen. And, you know, my response is kind of like, well, yeah, we wanted this to happen. The reality of it is it was either going to happen to us or it was going to happen by us. And it's, you know, it's going to be somewhere in between that because we, we don't have the political capital. We don't have the organizational capability in terms of as a culture to to be able to put aside our differences and work on the things that we agree on, we, we have not been able to do that well enough to, to find that real strength. And so we're, you know, we're, we're in this process in which, you know, like I said earlier, we're kind of, we're outgunned and we're trying to figure out how to make it work. And, and there's a lot of people who would have, you know, almost everybody I know is like, they just want the old days back. And the hard reality yeah. is that the old days are gone and they're not coming back. And, you know, it's like I said earlier, you're either you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And for my two cents, I'd rather try to be at the table. And, uh, you know, the flip side of it is you're sitting in the, you're sitting under the fluorescence in the board of supervisors chambers, mm -hmm. listening to the supervisors or listening to staff talking. You're thinking to yourself, this is my life. This is what I'm this is what I'm doing right now. I'm sitting under these fluorescence and I have a farm that I should be home running and I'm here and and that's you know it's hard but it's also it's it's the reality right now well and you say it you're i mean like just you know it's advocacy work you know you're speaking this is not a fight you fight just for yourself but you know you really are being that voice kind of for the voiceless really you know those who are not equipped or ready or uh, you know any number of reasons to, to come forward and and make those you know have those difficult conversations um so I, I, I applaud the work that you're doing because I know that is the work that a lot of people um, can't do or, or won't do at this time because I think that, you know, it's interesting when Annie and I started this, um, it was, I think, very much rooted in this sense of nostalgia almost of what we had lost. You know, we, we talked at the beginning about this kind of feeling like we're documenting a dying tribe. Um, 
And, you know, how do we keep the, the spirit and the soul intact, even as all these new, you know, regulations and bigger, better, faster, more, you know, kind of the Walmart effect comes in and threatens to take over this whole beautiful enclave and, you know, world we've been living in. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very hard, I think, to not get stuck in that place of like, the, you know, the, the magical good old days and, um, you know, right. dig your heels in and just kind of deny that this is the new, the new it, um, the, the new yeah. life we're all living in. Um, and the, you, you advocate a lot for, um, cannabis cooperatives. Can you tell us a little bit about what your vision is of that and what that looks like to your mind? You know, it's interesting. It's interesting because it's a, it's a hard topic. So ag co-ops are, you know, it's a traditional tool given to farmers to be able to work collectively, to band together, to um, do things like purchase bulk supplies at a discount and distribute them to their members, do things like engage in collective processing and, and um, work together to fund processing centers, to fund um, marketing campaigns, to fund distribution abilities, you know, so co-ops can be used to do any of those things. Um, it's been a big, big process at the state level. We finally did get authorization for co-ops out of the, the Mock-Cursa package. Um, and so, but they also did cap the co-ops at four acres, which, you know, uh, makes it, makes it interesting. Um, what does that one, mean they capped it at four acres? You can only be growing four acres to yeah, be in the co-op? Total of, to, total of four acres between all the members of the co-op. And so... Um, and that's in, oh, wow. that's in Mendocino or is that... that's a state that's state, that's gonna be the, the state okay. license. Yeah. And so, for instance, you know, wow. if you're looking at a, 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 a co-op of cottage cultivators, it's great. You can have 64 cottage cultivators in a co-op. That's a, that's an excellent thing. Um, and so it, it's, it's not that it's inherently unworkable, but one of the things that, you know, I've been, I've been intricately involved in the Emerald Grown project over the last couple of years and, Starting a co-op is hard. There's there's so much mm. process to it, and we're so we're not particularly used to it as cannabis farmers. We're really used to going it alone, and so it's you know it, it again comes back to that whole basis. Like, what are the shared values? What are the goals? What are the vision for the project? And one of the things that I would you know people that are considering a cooperative project. Make sure that there is a shared set of common understandings because it's amazing how far down the road you can get before you realize like, wow, some of us are operating with fundamentally different expectations about this <laughs> process. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, traditionally, I mean, one of the biggest things that co-ops help with is sales, figuring out and, and from the small farm perspective, this was one of the things that, that really occurred to me was that as a small farmer, like I don't have my farm is not going to produce enough product to make, you know, to, to be involved in a, a, a market share issue where I'm trying to gain market share and I'm trying to get shelf space. Like we just don't produce enough product to be able to do that in terms of a statewide branding campaign or something like that. And so organizing a whole bunch of small farmers and, and by the same token, distributors want larger lots generally. And so if this, you know, for the small farm producing a few of this, a few of that, a few of this, it's not particularly attractive to a distribution situation. And so, you know, essentially the central tenet of co-ops is organization. Providing organization 
and no matter which sphere of influence it is, whether it's product purchasing in the spring, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's distribution, it's creating that organization. And, and one of the hard parts about it is that every farmer is a king or a queen of their own separate fiefdom. And you get them in a room and mm. all farmers know that this is what they want to do and this is how they want to do it. And so it can be very, very difficult. Um, the other part of it is that farmers are really super busy all the time and running a co-op takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. And, and you know, what I would say yeah. to folks who are considering a co-op project is make sure to fund it well. Get enough people, consider it the launching of a small business and put enough money into it to mm -hmm. hire staff and to really um, launch it. Or, or make sure that you have a group of seriously dedicated volunteers who expect to spend a significant amount of time and energy on the thing. Because um, we definitely, you know, we muddled along for quite a while with, with a whole volunteer group. And, and it's been extremely draining. It's been extremely difficult. Um, to try to figure out all this stuff. And also, like I say, it's a, it's a new arena. The regulations are changing. Um, the, the model itself is kind of is something that we're not used to working with. But I think there's tremendous potential there, um, in just in terms, specifically in terms of organizing farmers. And one of the things that we found it to be most important for us is it's essentially a support group. You know, we get together, hmm. we share all the challenges that we're working on, we share the solutions that we're finding out, and, and you know, it's kind of one of those, like, everybody has a different piece of the puzzle, and you put it all together, and you got, you know, one complete picture. So it, it's definitely, you know, a hell of a process. One of the things that I think is going to be most beneficial for cooperative projects is centralized processing, is pooling money to start processing so that processing and manufacturing can happen in one central location, processes and procedures can be put in place to make sure that um, the medicine is clean, the medicine is quality, that the manufacturing processes are clean, that they're strain specific, uh, that, you know, the trim is separated appropriately, that all of the, you know, that value adds can be captured anywhere in the stream that, that, that are currently being missed a lot by individual farms, you know. And so, for instance, instead of selling trim and popcorn buds, that the processing facility would make pre-rolls and would manufacture rosin and oil and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so I think there's a, a huge potential there. Uh, again, one of the main issues is that most farmers are tapped out for time. And, and so it makes it really, really difficult to figure out how to organize the thing without taking on professional staff to handle the projects or, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that we're starting to see is, um, there's a there's a, a, a very there's a large sift going on where people are kind of picking their heads up and looking around and saying, OK, well, you know, either I'm going to do the cultivation thing, you know, either I'm going to I'm going to keep growing and, I, and I'm going to do it following going through the regulatory process. I'm going to keep growing and I'm not going to follow the regulatory process or I'm looking for some new avenue to make a living. And so I think, you know, that's a big part of it is people from within the culture who have the skills to do these things. Um, are, are going to, you know, my, my assumption is that they're going to start stepping up over the next year, two years, and we're going to see these, these projects really start to move forward in, in different ways. But, you know, again, it's hard. There's, there's just so much to it to, to figure out that, you know, it's essentially one of those, like, a lot of hard questions, not a lot of easy answers. Just real quick, there's a great resource, the CCCD, the California Center for Cooperative Development. They work strictly in co-ops. 
they do consumer co-ops, they do ag co-ops, they do um, produce, you know, like um, uh, co-ops, like uh, worker owned co-ops, all kind of different, you know, all kind of different cooperatives. And so, uh, like I say, CCCD, the California Center for Cooperative Development, those guys, those folks are great. Um, and then also, you know, just taking a, a look at the agricultural code for what cooperatives, you know, what ag co-ops are and what they can do. And those kinds of resources can be very, very helpful in terms of looking at how to structure a pro the, the, the project. And then, you know, a, a business plan, I think, is essential. You know, a, a very clear business plan with very clear goals and expectations and processes um, and, a, and, a, and an energized core group, I think, is very, very important. You know, some sort of uh, some sort of commonality and basis, whether it's a, a neighborhood group, whether it's a group who likes to do specific strains or shares types of production, but really making sure to sort out some commonalities in the project, I think, is is very basic to having a strong foundation for it. One of the uh, one of the quotes that I read uh, last night, one of your articles, was um, that hemp and cannabis production can help stimulate rural economies and reduce dependence on petroleum and chemicals. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit. How? Absolutely. You know, so. The traditional small farm is, you know, it has a plethora of, of crops that it produces and has one cash crop that brings in some money for implements and store-bought sugar, give or take. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a world of large farm subsidies in which um, the federal government will pay a, a large farm money for producing specific crops or not producing specific crops, there are no small farm subsidies. And on the North Coast, we've always referred to cannabis as the small farm subsidy program. And the idea being that <laughs> left to my own devices, I would have a hardline regulatory development that would say no cannabis farms over 10,000 square feet ever, uh -huh. period. That it should be deliberately a small scale diversified perspective that does not allow for a large scale and that it should be something that's held for the small farms because we need all the help we can get at this point as a, you know, as a vegetable farmer. Without cannabis, my, my farm model would not work. You know, right now, with, with cannabis and vegetables, my folks are employed on the farm. My brother, me and Amber, we have seasonal people who come through and work with us. And it's, you know, we've got folks who have been coming back year after year. And, and it's this whole process of just learning how to do these things. And so in terms of cannabis and hemp, you know, hemp is much more suited to the flatlands. You know, they have... You know, they already have the tractors, they have the equipment, um, and, and hemp is, you know, I mean, for instance, Henry Ford des designed his first engine to run on hemp seed oil. So there's a, there's a huge potential, and, and, you know, the uses that we're seeing for hemp in terms of hempcrete, uh, you know, instead of concrete, and so using it for building materials. BMW is manufacturing hemp door panels for its cars, you know, there's there are endless industrial uses for hemp that um, will replace the the need for a, a significant amount of petroleum. One of the one of the hard parts, I think, is that we're so addicted to petroleum for the running of engines that there are invariably, you know, millions of tons of byproduct from the petroleum process. I've been thinking about this a lot because they're repaving the highway south of Laytonville or north of Laytonville that they've repaved three times in the last three years. And 
I started wondering about it and wondering and, and got to thinking about, well, you know, this is essentially uh, a byproduct of the refining process that has to get put somewhere. So let's just spread it out on roads everywhere and we'll make sure to use it all up. So, you know, there's 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 all these, you know, there's so many dynamics in terms of huge corporations and big money and petroleum refining and all of that. But the, the reality of it is to me that um, hemp is a mechanism, as is cannabis. There are mechanisms for putting people back on the land and helping them to earn a living being there. And, you know, I, I think it's I think it's the most effective stimulus program that the government could look yeah. into. Yeah, I love hearing the amount of uh, just scholarship that you have. <laughs> yeah, I could listen to probably this for, for quite a while. It's been an interesting process. I was a sociology major, and so I sort of had this idea that I was going to come uh, back and do like ethnographic studies of, you know, the people I grew up with and the culture here. And, and I, you know, of course, I just got sucked yeah. right into it. And I didn't do any research. I just, but, but I have, you know, it's been very much a crash, a series of crash courses in which first I did sociology and then I did farming and now I do policy. And so it's, it's really been this process of, of learning and reading and, and, and absorbing knowledge and information that, you know, on the one hand has been incredible. You know, it's been this, just this thought provoking journey. On the other hand, it's, it can be disheartening just seeing like how the world works right now and how, how dominated we are by money and corporations. And that it's, you know, uh, to me, it really does come down to like cannabis is, is kind of our last hope and, and how it comes out of regulate or how it comes out of prohibition, you know, and, and whether or not it becomes this just another mm -hmm. corporate big business industry or does it, you know, it doesn't manage to sort of maintain the culture and reality while translating back into the public consciousness. You know, it's, it's hard. There's it's it's a trip and, and we'll see you know, how, how it plays out. One of the things that I also wanted to bring up was um, this idea of, you know, these new pathways to legality. This is another article you wrote leading to new opportunities to help low income patients. And with the idea being that because, you know, as it is, as it stands now, all of the this the cannabis is, is grown in rural communities, but um, the majority of people needing the medicine are um, outside of this community. And so, you know, I, am I understanding that right so far? I'm, is that what you're saying? Yes. And I'm, you know, I'm glad you bring it up because it does touch on this much larger perspective, larger perspective in which I see cannabis essentially as what I call a fulcrum crop. It has the ability to leverage differences in economics between rural and urban environments. And so, you know, rural environments are production environments, urban environments are consumption environments. And so if we can use things, you know, for instance, cannabis is a high value, low volume crop. And so if we're able to use cannabis as a mechanism for also transporting high quality foodstuffs, high quality vegetables, product, you know, other things that farms produce into urban areas, we can use it as a, as a, you know, again, as leverage, as a fulcrum to be able to address all kinds of social issues in terms of, you know, you look at urban food deserts mm -hmm. and places where people can't get fresh quality produce and food. And, and same thing with the medicine that, they, you know, um, that they need to be able to have access to quality medicine. And I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in donations. I'm a big believer in, um, 
economics that's driven by essentially by economic status in which if you can afford to pay for it, I think you should pay top dollar. And if you can't, I think you ought to be able to get a discount mm -hmm. by the same token. You know, it's like, I, I also think that quality products should fetch a, a, a high, a fair to high market value. You know, I think it's, it's criminal that, you know, most farmers pay for the privilege of farming with an off farm job. I think that farmers ought to be able to make, you know, white collar salary. And, and so, it's it's definitely this process in which you know how do we as a society structure the the realities that farmers face and the realities that urban consumers face and and so you know the more that we're able to use and this goes back to the cooperative model and the idea of being able to to get cannabis and vegetables and other farm products into the city and you know I think government should come through with tax incentives I think that small producers and, and this is one of the frustrating things about the current, the, the regulations as they are now. Um, when AUMA passed, it authorized a very specific set of taxes, 100, you know, just shy of 150 a pound for flour and just shy of $50 a pound for trim. And there's no variation there. We were working in the legislature, and, and this was one of those things, again, that goes back to that sort of frustrating reality in which we had created pathways in the legislature in which the tax bill that we were working on would have authorized uh, a tiered tax system. So the smaller the farm, the lower percentage of taxes they would pay. The bigger the farm, the higher the percentage they would pay. And at the time, people were like, why are you guys supporting taxes? Why are you working on taxes? We think there should be no taxes. And it was like, dude, there's going to be taxes. Let's try and make them as good as we can make them. And then 64 passed, and we got <laughs> stuck with this, like, these are the really specific taxes that you're stuck dealing with. And so, it, you know, I, I'm really, really hoping that we can see some sort of incentive-based program for the, from the government, especially for things like, you know, donations. Like the idea that if I want to donate medicine to, uh, you know, to, to compassion programs and such, that I'm still going to have to pay $150 a pound tax on it is, you know, to me is bullshit. You know, it's, it's definitely – so there's, there's a lot of work to be done. But I also I think there's a tremendous potential for – thinking outside the box and crafting solutions that, that make the world a better place. It seems like it's, you know, a lot of it, I'm, I'm just listening, you know, it's almost, you're kind of, it's taking a workforce that has become really specialized in one area and in order for them to kind of, you know, evolve, grow, adapt, and ride this next wave, you kind of have to bring in, you know, many, many different hats for them to be able to wear and trade on and off as needed for them to be able to continue just just to farm. Right. You know, like you say, like, you know, you're you're farming full time, but that doesn't mean that you're at your farm all day. That means that you've gotten to learn a whole bunch of other skills just to keep the, the right to keep farming. It sounds like, um, yeah. which I think is daunting for so many people. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, it's daunting for all of us. It, you know, it's like yeah. it's, it's an emotional roller coaster, and you know, I've kind of been running with the joke that I have my farmer hat and I have my policy helmet. And mm -hmm. you know, do you think that it's being overregulated? Do you, I mean that's something that kind of keeps coming up is that the regulations that are being put in place on cannabis are just extreme compared to anything else? You know, what I would say is yes, but it's not surprising. There's a whole bunch of uh -huh. right. um, uh, factors there. One, you know, because everybody says, well, they should regulate it just like tomatoes. And the reality of it is that 20th century agriculture has failed us. If we create 
um, an industrial cannabis agriculture that's cast in the same model of the current industrial ag paradigm, then we have failed us, we've failed the environment, we've failed the earth. So the reality is that a new model is needed. The further reality is that there are undeniable negative consequences of cannabis cultivation on the North Coast. There's also some really good consequences, but the reality of it is that there's some bad things that have happened environmentally, um, and, and we're dealing with the fallout of that. And so, for instance, without that public perception, I don't think we'd have quite as stringent environmental controls on it as we do. But the reality of it is that there has been a creation of a negative public perception about cannabis cultivation that has led to a backlash of heavy restrictions. And, and this, is, this is the hardest thing to explain to people who are on the far left, is that just like everybody on the far left thinks that, and, and I would tend to agree with this, but thinks that cannabis is a magical, incredible, amazing plant that saves lives and does awesome things, there are just as many people on the far right who think it is the devil weed and it should be restricted and never allowed by anybody anywhere. And the unfortunate reality is that public policy develops in the center. And mm -hmm. so to me, yeah. like, is it being overregulated? Yes. Is it surprising? No. And, right. you know, it's, it's, the, it's the reality that, that we face, you know. And, and I think 10, 15, 20 years from now, we may have managed to knock some of this back a bit. But uh, it, it's certainly not going to happen immediately. We're not going to go from a, a prohibition reality to a free-for-all reality. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be like tomatoes anytime soon. And, you know, the interesting, this, there's a really, really interesting dynamic in which, you know, a lot of, I've heard a fair amount of times, you know, essentially something along the lines of like, well, it should be just like tomatoes, but I should still be able to get paid really good for it. And, you know, what I say is like, I sell yes. tomatoes at farmer's yeah. market and, and I sell them for money and, you know, I, I, I do slightly better than break even, but I damn sure I'm not getting paid off tomatoes. You know, I'd have to grow a whole lot of tomatoes to be able. And, and you know, I heard somebody arguing that, you know, it should, you know, again, that it should be just like corn. And my response is, how many small corn farmers are there out there? <laughs> and and so yeah. the the reality yeah. of it is that like if we don't structure very specific regulations and try to figure out ways to make it work for the small farm, it's not. It's just not. We're going to see a, a rapid consolidation, and the small farm is going to be out of business. And that's essentially. You know, what I've spent the last three years fighting for is figuring out ways to keep the small farm in business. Is it going to work? I don't know. Ask me in five years. But the reality of it is, you know, for instance, yeah. you look at Colorado, rapid consolidation. You look at Washington, rapid consolidation. You look at ag, rapid consolidation, corporatization. And so without some really specific regulatory processes, uh, it's not going to work. That said really specific regulatory processes are difficult for farms to deal with. You know, there's kind of a running joke on the farm these days that um, I'm a night and weekend farmer and I'm a paperwork guy Monday through Friday, nine to five, you know, dealing with workers comp and payroll and all of the various regulatory hoops that have to be jumped through. And it's, it's, it's certainly not any fun. And the, you know, the, the further reality of it is that California is a very, very difficult state to do business in, whether it's cannabis whether yeah. it's dry cleaning, whether it's Airbnb, like it's, what? you know, Why is that? Counties, there's just a ton of regulations on everything.
Yeah, we and, regulate the shit out of just about everything. <laughs> and, you know, the interesting part of it is that it, it's hard. You know, like I said earlier, I, you know, I, I sort of built my farm on that whole Joel Salatin. Um, everything I want to do is illegal. I should, there shouldn't be any regulations. There should be a free market. And I'll tell you, I've come a long way away from that perspective, just seeing what happens in an unregulated industry. And the reality of it is that we need regulations and we need rules because people do dumb things that they shouldn't do. And right. it, it's, I, it's, it's really frustrating. You know, it, we are, we're reaching a point in which there are too many people and not enough resources. And there has to be an, you know, I mean, the tragedy, tragedy of the commons is, it's as, you know, it's as old as humanity itself. And, and the reality of it is that if we, we can't figure out a way to govern ourselves to live in workable manner with the environment, then we're screwed. And I mean, and we're seeing it roll out right now with the fires and the floods and the whole climate change reality that we're undergoing. And so on the one hand, like regulations suck. On the other hand, not regulations and, and the abuse of the environment sucks. And so, you know, there's, there has to be a happy medium, but humans have a really, like, we, we, we tend to swing wildly, you know, like past the center and over to the other side and then back. And it's really, really hard to find that good common middle ground where it's workable, it's functional. And this, this, I think, is like the bitter irony of my life is that there is not really any good solutions. There's, you know, what, what do they say about, there's, a, there's an old saying, I can't remember exactly, but it's something along the lines of like, this is the worst possible system except for every other one that we already tried. <laughs> and so, you know, there's just, there, it's like, yeah. it, it's hard to figure out what is the right way. And in a perfect world, everybody would all do the right thing and it would be hunky-dory and we'd ride off into the right. sunset and have cherries yeah. and candies. But the reality of it is that um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't often work that way. And so, and, and I mean, the further reality is that regulations often stymie the good people because they're stuck dealing with the regulations and and the people who don't give a shit do what they want right. anyway and and so you know again it's it's a it's a big ball of wax with no no really good answers and you know people keep saying to me like well you should run for supervisor and i'm like oh man uh, oh boy <laughs> it's like it's just the system is one more wonderful thing that you well, so we should we should point out that you are a board member of the California Growers Association, right? I don't think we even. I am. Yeah, I serve as vice chair for Cal Growers, okay. um, and I work locally with the the MCGA chapter, the Mendocino County Growers Alliance, and and um, just trying to you know again, trying to help people figure out what it is that we want, and and this has been one of the most frustrating things is like everybody knows what they don't want. But it's really hard for us to figure out, like, what we want that's within the scope of things we can achieve. You know, I mean, because what do we want? We want the old days, just like it was, but it's not going to happen. And so how do we how do we move forward? How do we make it work? And it's hard. You know, it's one of the things that's been really frustrating for me down here in Mendo is that um, the supervisors are generally pretty willing. You know, it's like if I can present them with a reason for why I think something and how it's going to affect the community. They're generally willing to be helpful with it, but we've encountered a lot of sort of just kind of built-in conservatism from staff, built-in rules and regulations that don't necessarily fit what it is we're trying to do. You know, dealing with the, 
the building and planning issues, the ADA compliance issues, some of these things that are just kind of baked into local government has been extremely difficult. And, and so, you know, again, a lot of the times it's like you know, two steps forward, three steps back, two steps sideways, one step forward. You know, it's like you're, you end up fighting on issues that you didn't think were going to be issues. You end up having to spend a, a huge amount of time and effort and political capital to beat back something that shouldn't even have been an issue in the first place or that, that should have been an issue, but you didn't see it coming. And, and so then when you get to the, you know, by the time you're actually working on the issues you want to work on, you're already pretty far down the road and, and, and it's the, the result is not as good as you had hoped it would be. And, and so, and that's been hard, you know, there's for the first several years, you know, the, if I had a dollar for everybody who told me, well, I'm just going to sit back and see how this plays out. I, I pretty much could retire now. <laughs> and the hard reality of it is that like, it's like I said earlier, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And so all these, a lot of these folks are picking their heads up now and they're really angry about how the process has developed. And I'm like, cool, sweet. Could have used the mm-hmm. support a while ago. It's hard, you know, and, and I, the last thing I want to do is sound, sound like bitter or salty because this is a, this is a rugged process for our whole community. This is a, a huge transition, a huge shift, and we're all trying to figure it out and it's difficult. But it also, you know, the thing that got me into it was looking at it and saying, like, wow, if we don't do something to represent for ourselves, we're not going to exist in five or ten years. You know, it's just been it's been exceptionally hard to to mobilize the community. And and with good reason, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want to be mobilized. There's a lot of people who don't want to participate. And even those who do aren't necessarily sure they can do it. And so it's, you know, like I say, a lot of hard questions, not a lot of good answers, but it's kind of this fight that we have to engage in because it's an existential threat for us. Well, and that came up with a uh, with an interview we did with a friend of mine who is actually on the Del Norte Growers Association, maybe, but he's the one that, that said we should look into the California Growers Association. And we asked him, uh, you know, are you happy that you're doing this kind of thing? How did you get into this part of it? And he was like, this, this is terrible. This is not the part that I want to do, but it has to be done. You can't just go into this with your head down. You know, this is all happening and you have to be a part totally. of it and you have to be educated and you have to know what's going on and you have to have a say if you want to, if you want to make a difference. So it's, and, and especially it's like, we're the North coast. We're a rural economically depressed area, far from the center of where the things happen. You know, it, it's uh, north of San Francisco. We have Jim Wood. LA has 35 <laughs> assembly members. So you, you start yeah. to, you know, you, you start to realize like the like public policy doesn't, you know, statewide policy doesn't develop based on what we think on the North Coast for the most part. And, and that's a big part of it. You know, it's like the amount of influence that we've had on the process is, is pretty profound. And that, that, again, is one of the things that can be frustrating for me is, is people are like, this is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know how much more terrible it would be if we weren't involved in trying to make it better? It's just hard. It's like, you know, what we need is, is more involvement, more people participating, trying to figure it out and trying to be part of it in a cogent, calm, collected manner. Like I said, the number of times where, you know, like one of the elder hippies gets up and yells at the supervisors and like feels like they accomplished something. And I'm like, that was that was totally detrimental to our whole cause. Just there. I get that you feel better because mm-hmm. you gave them a piece of your mind. But do you think that actually helped? And so it's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's frustrating, but it's also, it's just like the dude said, 
we got to do it. It's, you know, is this, is this really what I like expected to spend my time working on? No. And is it, but, but it's also like, we, we, we can't not do it is really what Uh it comes down to. You've touched on it in, in many different ways. I just wonder if you could encapsulate for us just kind of what, you know, what is the kind of that big picture, that big vision that keeps you coming back to, you know, slug through all of the muck that you get to to work through right now in order to, you know, move these policies forward and to have a place at the table to be heard? Like, what is that bigger ethos life vision that you that keeps you coming back that you feel that you're you're fighting for you know what what really drives me is the need for a for a new agriculture for a 21st century agriculture that that is a return to the values that as americans we all hold you know american is a is based on an agrarian reality it's based on a nation of small farmers and and for the most part that has ceased to exist at this point but we all carry around the idea of the small farm and we love the idea, you know, we, we carry around in our heads and our hearts that, you know, that red barn with the rooster and the picket fence and, and sort of this pastoral image that has been essentially usurped by corporations. And the industrial paradigm has, has failed us on, on all accounts. There's not one thing you can point to in the industrial paradigm and be like, we got that right. You know, when you you start to factor in <laughs> obesity and you start to factor in soil loss and nutrient runoff and the overall, you know, carbon in the atmosphere and climate change and all these things, what we need is a, is a system of small farms and we need um, sustainability. And sustainability is a bad buzzword, but just this idea that we can do better. And I think cannabis holds a key to that when you, you know, you factor in both hemp and psychoactive production. I think it really creates the opportunity for a, you know, sort of a return to the things that we had right in the past, coupled with the things that we can do, you know, in a modern technological way. And and so I think that, you know, I mean, for instance, our, our grandparents, our great grandparents left the farm because of the crushing drudgery of the work. And I think that moving forward there's a there's a real opportunity for humans to return to the land to be part of the cycles of of nature that that a lot of people are really missing right now and and so i think that we need to put people back on the land we need to figure out a way for them to be able to make a a generative income off of it and i think cannabis is a huge opportunity for that and and that's one of the things that is really you know that drove us in going public and bringing media to the farm and being on TV and talking about it is this idea that, you know, we need small farms in this country. We need viable, meaningful employment, and we need to increase the acreage farmed. We need to increase the number of farmers, and we need to get away from this industrial paradigm of one guy on a tractor running a thousand acres. It's just, it's it's a failed paradigm growing, you know, genetically modified corn, wheat, and soybeans. And Small farms are, are more productive on an acre-by-acre acre basis than are these massive agricultural industrial paradigm operations. And I, I think it's, you know, I, we, we, we sort of face a, a civilizational decision in which are we going to continue down this path of industrialization, which, is, which has failed us and will continue to do so, or are we going to find a better way? And, and that's really what what keeps me getting out of bed in the morning to go to the supervisor meeting is that um, we have to have this foundation and, and 
you know, that was, that was again, the hard part about it was realizing that like, this is going to be, you know, I, I had this, this realization at one point that we're three generations into, um, this, this industrial paradigm and it's taken three generations for it to get this bad. And it's going to take three generations for it to get better. And, and that was a, both a, both an empowering thing, but a very, very hard thing to realize that like, we're so deep in the dark that none of us alive today are ever going to see the light. And the best we can do is start headed in the right direction and that our children's children may someday see the light, but it's a, it's a hell of a challenge. And that's, that's what drives me. Effervescence by Casey O'Neill. The 53,000 craft cannabis farms in the state of California stand in stark, meaningful response to the industrial corporate paradigm. We are the reinvigoration of the rural American landscape. Our farms exist in the ruins of industrial timber practices and the early decline of the agri-industrial complex. We make a journey back to our shared agrarian roots, leveraging cannabis as a fulcrum crop to bring us back to the land and keep us here. Cannabis culture has grown deep and strong, a proper ferment kept locked away under the pressure of a prohibition system. Like any proper culture, we have developed over time. I've come to believe that the systemic pressure we've been kept under has served as a glass bottle containing our reality until it became so effervescent that it began to bubble over. Effervescence is an appropriate metaphor. The good things we think of in fermented beverages are comparable to the light, loving nature of cannabis culture. Fermented beverages have the power to alter the consciousness, and as such, they are in a similar class to the magical plant we are honored to tend. Substances that alter the consciousness provided the tools that helped to make us human. They continue to provide us with the ability to assess and understand our reality and to address problems through different lenses of perspective. Fermented beverages and the power to alter the consciousness. As such, they are in a similar class to the plant of which we are the keepers. Like fermented beverages... Cannabis culture has been kept under pressure, dividing, multiplying, becoming more self-aware as the hyphal tendrils of our network have extended into every village, town, burg, city, and countryside in this great nation. We are cannabis culture, and we are everywhere. Thanks for listening to this very informative talk with a local farmer and board member of the California Growers Association. Please check out our website at mendpodcast.com to read the show notes and find links to various resources mentioned in this episode. We have gotten some great feedback via word of mouth and face-to-face. We love the appreciation and the encouragement, and we thank you for that. We would also encourage our listeners to leave us a review on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find their way to this labor of love that we call Mend Life at the Seams. Till next time.